Acts chapter 5, we have uh, talked a lot about the, the new church, the early church. Um, some really cool stuff has happened. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off. I'm going to preach the same few verses again, just as a, as a refresher to, to let us know where we are since it's been a while since we've been together. But in Acts chapter 5, we see the first event of sin in the church. That for the first time ever, we had this church, it's breaking out all over Jerusalem, it's, it's exploding numerically, thousands upon thousands of people are seeing that Christ really was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Lord, and, and the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, even though the, the, the officials, the people in power are telling Peter and James and, and John and the rest of them, you can't speak about this name anymore, and they're saying, listen, we can't stop speaking about this name, and people are seeing miraculous signs and wonders and miracles are taking place, and all of these things are happening to reinforce the gospel. All of these things are happening to show that the, the Bible is true and that the scripture, the prophecies about Jesus have come to pass and that Jesus truly was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so now we pick up as the church has exploded, the church is, is seeing, seeing great success, great expansion, and, and, and they're also seeing great needs. They're meeting needs, not only of, of the community, of, of the people that, that are bringing sick people to be healed, but they're also seeing that within the community there are needs. And so the church is rising up to meet those needs. You have people who are selling property. They're selling land. They're, they're, they're not doing it because they have to. They're not doing it because Peter stood up and said, All right, everybody we got to get rid of all of our excess possessions, sell it, distribute it equally so that we can all be on the same level. He didn't do that. It was the Holy Spirit that was leading people to be generous and to be giving. It was the Holy Spirit that was, that was putting the needs of others in front of these, these early, early church saints and was saying, listen, you can sell that piece of property, you can give it to the church, and you can support this ministry. Okay, so that's what was happening. That's, that's why we give to the church. You know, we don't just give to the church so that we can have lights. We don't just give to the church so that I can afford, you know, I can have a salary. We don't just give to the church, you know, to, to, to have a building. We give to the church. This is an act of worship, of giving, of what God has blessed us with. If you have a job, if you earn a wage... God has said, Jesus has said, that we should not ignore giving the tenth, the first fruits, the ten percent of what we earn, giving it to the church because that's what we use to do ministry and to meet needs. That's what we do to send missionaries all over the world. That's what we do so that, so that I can have a job as a, as a called, ordained minister of the gospel to where I can go around in this city and preach and teach and share the gospel. Okay, That's what we give the money to the church so that you guys can have the resources to be discipled and trained up to be able to share the gospel where you live as well. And so that's what we see happening is they're, they're giving to the church. They're generous. They're not doing it out of obligation or compulsion. They're doing it out of a grateful and, and generous heart as the Holy Spirit is leading them. But you see, anytime there's money involved, anytime there's money involved, there's going to be greed. There's going to be selfishness. 
And so we, we see that happening. That was the very first sin in the church was pride and selfishness coming out. So you have Sapphire and Ananias, a married couple, landowners. They sell a piece of land. It was their land. They could have done with it whatever they want. There was no edict from the church leadership that said, everyone has to sell a piece of property and give us all the money. Nothing like that. But they schemed together in their hearts and they said, they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sell this piece of property and we're going to sell it for this amount. But when we bring the money, we're going to hold back a portion of it for ourselves so that we can go on a vacation later. You know, and we're going to give just this amount, a partial amount of what we actually sold it for. But we're going to tell the church so that they look at us and they're like, wow, look how generous these folks are. We're going to tell them that we gave all of it. We're going to say that we're giving a full commitment, but we're really just giving a partial commitment. And when I preached through that, I kind of related that of, where are you giving partial commitments to the church? Where are you dedicating partial commitments to the Lord? What is it in your life that you're reserving a little portion of it for yourself? And you're not giving all of your relationship to the Lord, all of your talent to the Lord, all of your heart to the Lord, all of your strength to the Lord, all of, all of who you are. I believe that there are things that God reveals to us and works in us and He says, you know what, you're still holding back some of this. You need to let it go. You need to, if you're going to say you follow me, and if you're going to say you, you have made me your master, your Lord, and you, in essence, are my slave, then you're going to have to let me have control of all of it. Like Brother Ronnie said, you're going to have to completely submit to the will of God and believe that I will take care of you. But that's not what Sapphire and Ananias did. Pridefully and arrogantly and selfishly, they bring a portion and Peter, Peter looks at them and says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You're caught. We know you're sinning. We know you're lying. And God deals with sin in His church. We see that, that first, Ananias, boom, he's dead. Young men take... Carry him out, bury him. A few hours later, a sapphire comes in, and, and, and she didn't know that her husband had been dead. And, and Peter looks at her and says, Did you sell that piece of property for the amount you gave us? She said, Yes, absolutely. And he says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you lied to God? And, and, and wasn't it yours to begin with? You didn't have to do it. You don't have to lie to us. You could have said, Hey, we sold this piece of property, but we really want to save some of it. If you had just been honest with, with what you were bringing, everything would have been fine. But you lied, and God deals with sin in His church. And she died. And the young men came and carried her out and buried her next to her husband. And this is where we pick up. This is where we pick up. In Acts chapter 5, it says, uh, verse 11, this is important. Verse 11, Then great fear came on the whole church and, all, and on all those who heard these things. Okay? News gets around in the church. Would y'all agree? Okay? <laughs> and it doesn't just get around in the church. What's going on in the church... Gets around out in the community too. People know what we're doing. People know what we're not doing. And so news gets around. 
And then pick it up there in verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. And believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and of women. So guys, I want to just remind us tonight. I know I've said a lot of these things before, but like I said, it's been a while since we've been together for me to preach. Four, and guys, I'm going to even alliterate for you like a really good Baptist preacher. They're all going to start with P, so that it's easy to remember. And there's four of them, because I just couldn't bring myself to do three. So four, four characteristics of a successful church. We've talked about the church a lot, because this is the acts of the believers, acts of the church. Okay, So we're going to talk a little bit about the church tonight, and I'm going to lay out for you four characteristics of a successful church. And this is what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about four characteristics of a successful Meridian Baptist Church non-profit organization. I'm talking about a successful church, you guys, as a body of believers, of, of people of common consent to worship and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at these four things, and there's not just four, but we're going to talk about four tonight. And you, you examine yourselves against the scripture, and you say, am I contributing to the success of the church? Or am I being one of the people in the church that is slowing down the progress and is hindering the success? So when you look at these, you be having this dialogue in yourself and you be praying through this of, God, what is it that that I'm doing or not doing that is matching up with Scripture here? So the first thing is purity. Purity. The first church, you see it there in the first 11 verses of of Acts chapter 5, sin was dealt with. Sin was dealt with. And guys, we... This, this, if you look at the sin that Sapphire and Ananias committed, it seems like a pretty big overreaction for God to kill them. I mean, it was just a little lie. It wasn't like they were embezzling money from the treasury. It wasn't like they were, they were, you know, uh, having adultery and, 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 and all these other really big things. It was just a little lie because they wanted to keep a little money for themselves. But see, that's, that's where, that's where the, the purity of the church is compromised whenever we look at a little sin and say it's not an important sin. It's an important sin to the degree that Jesus died for it. All sin, Jesus died for. And so, as a body of believers, we should deal with sin in one another. And it's not judging. This is the thing that i found that when you take a stand... For something, there will be people in the church who automatically are theologically experts on judgmentalism, and they'll say, "Well, you're just judging." You know, you know, because as Brother Ronnie says, when we shoot down in the hole and somebody happens to get hit, all of a sudden they don't want to get hit. Getting hit hurts, and so they're going to deflect and they're going to say, "Well, how dare you judge me? Doesn't the Bible say judge not and you won't be judged?" Well, it does say that, but it's a little bit out of context. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about immorality in the church, within the members of the church. Okay, These were sins in the church 
church members were sinning, and it doesn't really matter which sins it was, it was sin. And Christ died for sin because sin separated us. The big sin, the small sin, and the medium sin. It's all sin, and Christ died for it, for His church to be pure. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Just to give you a little background, um, there was some incest going on in the church. Okay? Like it was really gross. A man is living with his father's wife. Sons and moms are hooking up. And you are inflated with pride. Pride. There's another sin. So we've moved away from the, the, the sexual immorality, and now he's just talking about pride. Because see, the reason that everyone jumps to, well, you're just judging whenever you're really just trying to expose sin so that it can be dealt with, is because they're prideful. Because how dare you talk to me about my sin? Aren't you too a sinner? Well, yes, I am. But you know what? I'm also a loving brother or sister in Christ. And I want to see us grow together. So, so yeah, there's sin in my life and let's deal with that. But, but we can't just deflect and say, well, I, you, know, you can't talk to me about my sin until you become perfect. That's prideful. And so he says, there's, you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief. So that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Removed from your congregation. People who, who, who stand proudly in their sin and don't have grief over their sin in the first Corinthian church, those people were removed from the congregation. Matthew 18 says we treat them as a non-believer. We don't treat them as an as a enemy of the church, but we go backwards in time and say you are not repentant, you are not grieving over your sin, you are prideful, therefore you are displaying fruits that are consistent with a non-believer, and we will pray for your salvation. And we will no longer recognize you as a true believer. Because, because you are not acting, as the Scripture says, a true Holy Spirit-filled believer will act when they are confronted with sin. We will grieve over our sin when it is exposed. We will repent of our sin. We will, we will be humble in the face of believers when they are lovingly Dealing with our sin. We will not say, how dare you judge me. That's pride. And the model, the instruction from Paul is to remove them from the congregation. Not to say you can't come to church here anymore, but to say you, you no longer have the privileges of being one of the fellowship of believers. That there are certain rights and privileges that we have as fellowshipping brothers and sisters that non-believers should not have in the church. Because it's Christ's church and only Christ's people should be included in the church. For though I am absent in body but present in the Spirit, verse 3, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my Spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that 
so that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's basically saying, remove, remove your protection, remove your involvement from that. Pray for Him, love Him, but turn Him over to His consequences. Let Satan impose the consequences of his sin. He's not listening. And hopefully the Lord will use those consequences to bring that person around to repentance. Maybe they've got to hit rock bottom and land squarely on their own rear end to wake up, open up their eyes and say, what in the world am I doing? Instead of sugarcoating it and baby them and saying, we understand. No one's perfect. It's going to be okay. No, you deal with sin harshly. In the church. You face it honestly and boldly, but lovingly. Your boasting is not good. There's pride again. Do you not know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? He's saying you cannot settle for sinful church members to not be dealt with. Because the bad apple will ruin the whole basket. A little yeast will leaven the entire batch of dough. It just takes a little bit of sin to crack its way into the church to, to slow down the momentum of the church's success. Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. Deal with sin. Clean it out. We should not be able to, to sinners, people who don't believe, people who are fornicating, people who are adulterers, people who are liars, people who are gossips, should not be able to come in and sit in our pews and go unnoticed, blending in like they do. We should deal with sin. We should deal with sin among one another. You are indeed unleavened for Christ. Our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us be sincere. Let us be loving. But let us also speak the truth. Let us not deviate from the truth. And it is an... Guys, let me tell you this. It is a godless, evil response for when someone comes to you and says, Hey, you got to knock this out. You got to cut this out. This is not good for you. This relationship is toxic. You know, this is you're, you're sinning. It is an evil, godless response to look at them and distort scripture and say, "You need to deal with the plank in your own eye before you try and deal with the speck in mine." Or, "Hey, you're judging me. You're judging me. Quit judging me." This is why it's an evil, godless response. Verse 9, "I wrote you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people." We're a fellowship of believers. We're supposed to associate with one another. And so we have to deal with sin. If there are sins that Paul is saying is significant enough, and all sin is significant enough, then when it's unrepentant and you are marked by that sin, that is what your life is characterized by that sin, and, and, and we are not to associate, we are not to fellowship with those people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world. Okay, now we're getting into something different here. I didn't, he's, he's saying... I'm not talking about lost people. 
We can't just withdraw fellowship from lost people because they're sinners. Or not fellowship, but you know, association. We can't, just, we can't just not go out and be friends and have relationships and, 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 and associate with lost people. He says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. He's saying we live in a sinful world. And we've been planted in the world for a purpose. And the only way for us to achieve that purpose of making disciples of all nations is to associate with sinners. Not fellowship. Not be in intimate, deep, connected relationships. But, fellow, but associate. You know, work with. Love on. You know, go to. Witness to. This is what he says. But now I'm writing... You not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. He's saying, You have no right to set the standard on who is worthy of salvation. You have no right to look at the sin of a lost person and say, well, they're condemned. You, you don't have that position. Paul's saying, I don't have the position to look at a lost person and say, they're without hope. There's no hope for them. They're too bad for God. That's what... That's what that passage is talking about. Jesus is saying, listen, I came to save all who would be saved. You know, the, the will of God is that none should perish. That God loved the world, the whole world, so that He sent me. That whoever will believe can have eternal life. He's saying, you don't get to exclude this message from a certain group of people because you don't like them. That's judging them as worthy or unworthy of salvation. Paul is saying that those who claim to be believers but are immoral, are sexually active outside of a, of a, 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 a marriage relationships, who are gossips, who are drunkards, who are just sinful people on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, but they come here on Sunday and they're holy rollers and they got their best look on and they've got their Bible and they can quote the, the, the scriptures and, and, and they say they're Christians but their lives are completely outside of what, what scripture says. A Christian will behave and look like Paul says that we are to judge them and to deal with their sin and to deal with their sin he says what business do I have to judge outsiders don't you judge those who are on the inside don't you deal with sin don't you deal with sin in the church because purity in the church is one of the characteristics of a successful church? Acts chapter 5 verse 12, the church was pure before God. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles by common consent, purity, unity. They were united. They, they would meet, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. They would all come together. They would all worship together. They were pure. Because God had dealt with sin just a few verses later. And, and, and purity means that the church cannot be infiltrated by the world. Look at this. Verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people praised them highly. 
unbelievers looked at the church in its pure state after God had dealt with sin and they said, that is great, but we're not there yet. So we really don't want to have anything to do with it. Because we know that if we join that group and we have not truly been converted and if we are not truly 100% committed to that gospel and to that Jesus, we might die. Because that's what happened. We saw it. We heard about it. It's fresh. And so we will not try to associate and join ourselves with them unless we are sincere in our commitment to Christ. Unrepentant, unbelieving people cannot blend into a pure church. It's not that we put them on display and make a freak show out of them, but I'm just saying that a pure church that deals with sin, you won't have people coming and making false, careless, unsincere confessions of of faith. Asking to join the church. Not everybody can get in just because they say one thing or another. The commitment level to Christ and His Word will be so pure that those who are not empowered by the Holy Spirit will simply not be able to keep up. They they won't be able to fake it long enough. Because the, the endurance and the perseverance of the Holy Spirit-empowered church will outlast their best efforts to be good. It will outlast their best efforts to blend in. When the church is on fire, and the church is pure, and the church is devoted, and the church is dealing with sin, those who do not have a commitment to Christ that is held together by the, the, the sovereignty and providence of the Holy Spirit, they won't be able to keep up. But this is the thing. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. Because the church will be pure, the church deals with sin, the church is uncompromising, the church is is pure, He will use the purity of His people to attract lost people to Himself. People don't want to join a counterfeit. They want the real thing. You have to be the real thing. We have to be the real thing. Your friends may not want to come to church with you because they know who you really are. And you have some things to repent of. And you have some some growth and purity to undergo. Because you've asked them and you've asked them and you've asked them and then it boils down to they don't want to come because you're not real. Does that make sense? We're out of time. I got through one of the characteristics. And I don't want to keep you guys later than you have to be, but that's a good place to end, is is on purity. Guys, the success of the church depends on the purity of His church. The success of the church depends on the purity of His church. All eyes up here. The success of His church, your success as a believer in Christ depends on your your purity in Christ. And there are some things that I believe that we as believers need to repent of. And so I want to give you a time to do that. I just want to have kind of a moment of silence. I'm going to pray. And I want you to feel free to get before God by yourself. If you want to 
kneel there at your, 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 your chair. If you want to come to me and ask me to pray for you, if you have a friend in here that you need to confess something to, I'll tell you this. I was out at, out at Starbucks with another pastor in town, and we were talking about just kind of some of the stresses of being students, but also full-time ministers and dads and husbands. And, you know, and, and out of nowhere, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit just told me that when we were here, I needed to confess something to you. He said, you know, the other day, I was, I was trying to get something done at home, and Eden, his daughter, kind of came up, and, and she, was, she did something, and he just snapped at her, and he was like, you know what, I felt so terrible about that, and it's just been gnawing at me, and I need to confess that to you, and I need you to pray for me. And I was like, wow. I was like, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another, and you will be here healed. And the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And, and, and he and I were living out the gospel. And there was no judging. There was no preaching. There was nothing but love and, and gratitude. And we grew. We were more pure together. Because I confessed the same thing. I was like, I do that all the time. You know, I'm focused on something, I'm annoyed, I'm stressed, whatever it is, and Jamin will come in, and it's not even about Jamin, but Jamin will get a little bit of my wrath, and he'll get a little bit of my anger, and, and, and he takes the brunt of my frustration sometimes, and you know what, i got to confess that to you too, because I do that, and I shouldn't do that, and so pray for me, and we prayed for one another, and, and, and we left closer as, as brothers in Christ. And the purity of the church in that moment got a little bit stronger. And we were a little bit better prepared to go out and to be successful for His glory. So I just want to take a few minutes. I just want, I just want to have some silence. And you kind of close your eyes and, and just get alone with God and, and say, God, what is it about me that I need to give more, of, more to you? Where am I not pure? What do I need to confess? And confess it to God. And if you feel like you need to confess it to someone else, then find someone and confess that to them. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You for how You are so gracious to us and so patient. And Your kindness, Lord, leads us to repentance. And so I pray that You would do that. Just show us Your kindness. Let us feel Your kindness. Let us, let us know that You are kind so that we can trust You with the very deepest things that are bothering us, Lord. Help us to cast all of our cares on you, Father, so that we can realize that you are a good God, a good Father, and you will love us through, through everything. Father, we love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.